Hello and welcome to Train of Thought. My name is Rob Tobias. My guest today is Mose Mosley. Hey, welcome. Well, thanks. It's an honor to be here, Rob. Yeah. You're going to share some, some of your writing with us. Um, Mose is a, a builder. I know he builds these gypsy wagons that are pretty cool. I was at the Tiny Fest not too long ago. We crossed paths. But you also are a writer, and now you're, you've become the eulogy king or something. <laughs> well, it wasn't uh, anything I actually planned on doing. In fact, you know, you never really plan on your friends dying, but uh, it has happened a few times in the last couple of years, and I've been called on uh, mostly by myself, really, to uh, write eulogies. Yeah. So we're going to have you read one, I know— um, our friend Shay Ray passed away not too long ago, and uh, yeah, Ray, the uh, Energizer Bunny, who we thought would never ever stop, did finally die in his sleep Monday last Monday morning. Oh, was it Monday? Yeah. yeah. Um, but give me a little background, maybe how you uh, got to know Shay Ray. Yeah, so um, coming to Eugene in the '70s and early '80s, uh, it was pretty impossible to avoid the Oregon Country Fair. It was a big cultural gathering here. It meant a lot to a lot of people. And that's kind of where I uh, ran into the whole group, the Keezy Prankster group and the Vaudevillians and the entertainers. I was, uh, I was working out there in the community village building a booth when Robert Despain asked me uh, if I would go help out in the uh, in what was called Chumley Land at that point, where the, the which was a vaudevillian stage, and I went there and I did some building, and one thing led to another, and that's where I met the Flying Karamazov brothers and Reverend Chumley and Tom Noddy, and of course Ray Sewell, who was everybody's uh, favorite chef for all of the tours and everything we were on, and also had a booth out there. And what year? About when was this? I'm going to say that's about 86 or 87 uh, when I actually started with those guys. I later uh, toured with the uh, Karamazov brothers as a stage manager from about uh, 89 to 99, something like that. Vaudeville, vaudeville show. Yeah, up. you know, it was uh, it was the one form of vaudeville. We called it the new vaudeville, uh, but basically it all stemmed from uh, performers at the country fair who would come up with some, you know, they used to be jugglers or mimes or whatever. <laughs> and we're here in Eugene, Oregon, where everybody knows about the Oregon Country Fair. But just pretend somebody's uh, across the country listening to this yeah. that don't don't know what this Oregon Country Fair. Yeah, is. yeah, that's a good point. What is it? So uh, it's a big gathering of a tribe of alternative of people with alternative lifestyles. Okay, yeah. you know we like to use the word hippie. Some some people think that's pejorative. But uh, it's just a big family that started about 50 years ago, you know, and uh, craftspeople, entertainers, uh, and then all the volunteers that made it work became a family. And uh, every year they would put on this three-day – it really started out as a crafts fair, and then they added entertainment to it, and then it became kind of a cultural thing. It's kind of like a hippie Burning Man. And it's on a beautiful piece of land in Venita, Oregon. Uh, loop paths through the woods and, and booths built into trees and whatever. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's it, very unique. It's out in the Oregon woods. Uh, the reason I think I became involved with it is it's so close to Eugene, right? So it's, yeah. it's like 20 miles from Eugene or something like that. And uh, it's an incredible setting for anyone who hasn't ever seen it. It's certainly on your uh, 
bucket list of hippie things to do in your lifetime. Yeah. And one other little piece of background that re- relates to Ray is that to help buy the land, there, uh, I know there was this big Grateful Dead con- yeah, yeah. concert. So, yeah, so actually, you know, the history of Ray, you know, which uh, I, I interviewed him shortly before he died for his eulogy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the things that did happen with Ray is in 1972, he came, uh, came to Eugene from San Francisco uh, to be a restaurateur here, and he got involved with the people who were putting on a Grateful Dead concert out at the country fair to help try to pay for the land. That's when he... 72 is when Ray started, and then they did it every 10 years. In 1982, they did another one. That's the one that I was at. And then uh, that's when I think they actually ended up paying off the paying for the property so that the country fair owns this well now they own many i don't know like several hundred acres out there now but ray got to be known i mean as cooking for the <laughs> grateful dead did he also tour with the i'm dead? not sure whether you know how much did ray actually cook for the grateful dead that's one of those uh that's going to be one of those cultural icon questions that we will never answer and probably we don't want to ever answer okay uh, you know he did a lot of work he was really good friends with jerry garcia and uh, that whole group of guys. And he ended up being really good friends with Keezy and the Pranksters and those guys who also live near Eugene, and that's why. And, uh, yeah, he started out, you know, making hot dogs for Jerry (laughs) backstage at the Oregon Country Fair. So Ray was a pretty unique guy and uh, decided he'd have a wake for himself. Yeah, okay, so what happened is, uh, you know, Ray got on in years. He was 68. Uh, You know, he had never... He was a very strong individual, strong-willed, had a very strong, tight body, you know, short and big. And uh, he uh, had some problems with his kidneys and stuff. He had a kidney transplant. And uh, he felt like, actually, you know, I don't think that Ray actually felt like he was going to pass on, but I think other people saw him declining, and they suggested that, okay, well, before, why should we wait until this guy dies to have a big party? Let's have a big party so he can come. And so... Uh, they started to organize that. It happened October 14th of 2018. Uh, and all these people uh, from all over the country came. Lots of uh, people from the Dead family, from the Oregon Country Fair family, and from the Vaudevillian family, Chautauqua family. That was a touring group of Country Fair uh, performers. All of those people came together. The Royal Carnival. Yeah, the Royal Famille de Carnival. They came from Car- Seattle. Yeah. Uh, lots of people came. Yeah. Uh, People that are, they're kind of an extended family to me, but they're from all over the place. And we had this, we called it the live wake for Ray. And that's where, that's why I wrote this piece, which is actually called, it started out being called the 90% eulogy. But then after interviewing Ray, I realized he wasn't at the, I figured he was about 90% dead, right? And so he realized that after I interviewed him, he seemed really healthy, and this was a couple days before the wake. And so we changed it to the 68% eulogy because he was 68. I see. Well, I didn't get a chance to read it or hear it, so um, uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you here. So this is uh, Mose Mosley reading his uh, eulogy for Shay Ray. The 90% eulogy. A very short history of little-known facts surrounding the life and times of Shea Ray Sewell. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today, but soft. What wind through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Ray is the morning sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief. 
Break wind, fair ray, for is there not an aroma among us? What is in a name? Flatulence would smell as bad were it called a rose. Friends, vaudevillians, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to eulogize Chef Ray, not to euthanize him. The evil smell of men lives after them. The sweetness is off interred with their bones. So let it be with Ray. Dmitri Karamazov says he was ambitious, and Dmitri is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men, and I have broken wind with the finest of them. Oh, I could play the woman with mine eyes and braggard with my tongue, but, gentle heavens, cut short all intermission. Front to front bring thou this farting fiend of Scotland and myself. Within my sword's length set him, and if he... Sorry, it's almost impossible for me to speak of Shea Ray without waxing Shakespearean. Raymond Dale Greenwald Sewell was born in 1950 at an unknown location in San Francisco, California. His mother was the lovely starlet Hyacinth April Greenwald, recently of hate at Ashbury. The identity of his biological father is shrouded in a swirling San Francisco fog of urban legend. Some say his dad was a young Jack Kennedy on his way home from the war in the Pacific in 1945. Impossible? You do the math. Ray Sewell had a very, very, very long gestation period. That's all I'm saying. Look at him today, that striking face, destined for a cereal box or milk carton, sort of a cross between JFK and Abraham Lincoln, most certainly presidential material, especially if you are judging by today's standards. The young Raymond grew up tough in the projects of China Basin in the Mission District. At the age of eight, his mother remarried, and Ray moved to the Emerald Hills above Redwood City, California. It was here that he first encountered his love for nature and the little psychoactive mushrooms that grew, grew among the idyllic redwood trees. Shortly after this discovery, he was observed cooking and selling toadstools to his classmates at Emerald Elementary School. Ray was then accepted, remanded into the elite and remote Alcatraz School for Gifted Boys. It was here that he met his lifelong friend, Jerome John Garcia. An uncorroborated story of little-known fact tells of the two young lads, Ray was 12 at the time, on kitchen duty in the school cafeteria. While chopping potatoes and onions for the evening meal, the pair were distracted by an interminably long drum solo coming from the adjacent middle school music room. Confused by the offbeat tempo, Ray's knife slipped, causing him to slice off the last two knuckles of Jerry's right middle finger. Thinking quickly, Ray slipped the severed finger into a jar of formaldehyde, which he was using to flavor the dinner stew. Of course, the rest is legend. Despite his impairment, Garcia went on to play electric guitar with a famous band called the Warlocks. Meanwhile, Ray kept Jerry's fingertip in a small jar that was later displayed for many years on his fireplace mantle until it was eventually lost in a high-stakes, acid-induced poker game at a hippie house in La Honda, California, hosted by a former wrestler, Mary Prankster, and obscure writer named Ken Kesey. These are little-known facts, but, of course, a whole other story. After paying his debt to society at Alcatraz, Ray Sewell was paroled back to live with his mom and stepdad near Woodside, California. Here he became a star athlete at Sequoia High School in Redwood City. In his senior year, Ray played starting fullback, Ramblin' Ray they called him, for the Fighting Purple Ravens football team and helped lead them to the California State High School Championship in 1967. 
Yes, this is true. Ray also wrestled in high school and college and very nearly made the Team USA wrestling squad for the 1968 Olympics. In fact, he would have been an Olympian if not for a minor flaw in the Olympic, in the Olympic rules, which did not include his weight class. Many years later, the Zeppelin class was finally added to the Olympic Greco-Roman wrestling, but by then, of course, Ray was past his athletic prime. The story goes on and on. As we all know, Ray's life is filled with little-known facts, far more than we could ever cover in one simple 90% eulogy. For instance, in 1969, he was accepted into a very competitive culinary apprentice program and became first assistant to the legendary chef Georges Bollag at the four-star L'Auberge French restaurant in the Al Camino section of Redwood City. Formally trained in classic French cuisine, he took his skills to Eugene, Oregon in 1972, where he cooked hot dogs for the Overdogs backstage at the first field trip on the Vanita site of the Oregon Country Fair. Here he was reunited with his old friend Jerry Garcia and a small group of fledgling musicians calling themselves the Grateful Dead. No one really knows what happened to them, but Ray went on to parlay his culinary training into several failed or failing restaurants, the most famous of which was La Primavera. This was an exclusive classically French restaurant in a town of hot dogs and burritos. It serves as a prime example of Ray's business acumen. This beautiful and astonishingly, astonishingly expensive eatery occupied a historic old house that was completely refurbished at great expense. It was one of Ray's most successful failures and set the bar for his restaurants to come. In the early 80s, shortly after the closing of La Primavera, Raymond Sewell was listed as one of Fortuneless 500's top 100 most creatively impractical restaurateurs. It was a well-deserved honor, and he made the list for several years in the 80s and 90s. It was at La Primavera that Ray met the astonishingly blonde Dawn Leona Dufour, who was hired as a bartender by the restaurant manager. Dawn and Ray immediately fell in love. After a tragic accident with the dumbwaiter, Dawn was temporarily hospitalized. Much later, when she came out of the coma, she discovered that she and Ray had been happily married for several years and that she was indeed pregnant. Their lovely daughter, Jennifer Shine, was born on January 30, 1978, bringing a light and happiness into the world that would only be outshined by her own daughter, Ray's first grandchild, Annabella, born in 2012. Shay Ray has had a long and inventful life, made even more so by his own fictitious self-inventions. Who can forget events like the Girth First Movement, subtitled Be Your Own Blimp, or Happy the Hummingbird, Take a Sip, My Little Pretty, or Grits La Ritz, Where Salmon Burgers Came to Die, or the beautiful Shay Ray's Café de Cafés, Where Many an Investor Ate Humble Pie. The list grows ever longer. Ray showed us all how to successfully fail over and over and over. Ray made an art out of ideas that are easy to say and impossible to do. Ray led the way for very young, for every young up-and-coming chef with a dream of becoming a successful restaurateur, for every food truck owner with a vision of making something delicious out of nothing you can afford, for every fledgling tiny hummingbird flitting from bird feeder to bird feeder while the hungry house cats silently watch. 
Ray set an example which is impossible to ignore. Ray's message is clear and set strongly by his personal life. The message is this. Don't do it! Sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here. Shay Ray was and is my longtime friend. Coming from the most humble of origins in, the mo- in one of the most exclusive and expensive and pampered areas of Golden, California, Ray reached the furthermost heights of happiness, bliss, and self-absorption. He constantly reinvented a life that already teetered on the edge of believability. He allowed his creativity to blossom beyond the confines of uh, other people's money. He brought laughter and joy into the lives of his many, many friends and left us all wanting a decent meal. And so he crosses the bridge into the here and after, smiling back at us all, the breeze filtering through his bushy gray beard as bits of crackers and sunflower seeds and crushed cashews, the remnants of a recent lunch, scatter in the wind. Good night, good night, parting is such sweet sorrow. The gray-eyed morn smiles on the frowning night, checkering the eastern clouds with streaks of light, and flickering darkness like a drunkard reels from fourth day's path and titan's wheels. Now, ere the sun advanced his burning eye, the day to cheer and night's dank dew to dry, fare thee well, sweet prince, may you sleep with the salmon. One further footnote. Now, keep in mind, Ray was still alive when this was read. Raymond Dale Greenwald Sewell shook off the mortal coil of earthly existence on October 24th, 2056, shortly after the 39th annual Before the Wake celebration in his honor. He was 106 years old and mostly bionic at that point. His eulogy was read by an ancient American humorist whose name no one could remember. After an extensive cremation, his ashes were scattered in outer space among the stars, excepting for a small shaker of which was smuggled backstage during the opening night of an all-android Grateful Dead tribute band called Jerry's Middle Finger. The Red Rocks Amphitheater was filled to capacity and loud as hell as Ray's ashes were mixed into the salsa at the catering table. Those groupies in attendance later reported eating the salsa with chips and refried beans, something they said tasted odd and left them with a lasting aftertaste, both sweet, crunchy, and impossible to define. Days later, every single one of them reported an almost uncontrollable urge to open a restaurant. (laughs) That's great. That was added (laughs) because Ray was still in the audience at the time. Yeah. That's a good blend of uh, <laughs> fact and fiction in there. <laughs> I like the Zeppelin class. Yes, yeah. the point uh, <laughs> the point being that Ray, uh, among his many talents, and Ray was a very intelligent, strong, uh, and creative individual, but among his many talents was uh, he was great at bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> he was the best. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not too bad yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I learned. Uh, you know, I, I studied at the feet of the master. <laughs> well, um, I know you got at least one more to read. You've written, you've written a few of these, but uh, you mentioned Kesey and being, being part of that whole scene. Yeah. So, we're, and but we also have this mutual friend uh, Ben Bachner who right. passed away, and you wrote right. a nice um, uh, eulogy for his passing, which was uh, a rough one to take. He was a little younger than Ray, and we yeah. didn't know he was ever yeah uh, ever yeah. Ill, but uh, Ben's uh, death was very sudden. Uh, you know, again in the last couple of years, it's uh, 
I think that's the fourth. I think Ray's is the fourth eulogy that I've actually written in the in wow. two years, uh, and uh, and then Ben, who was a very close friend of mine. Well, we had we had a very close friendship over a many many years, so it kind of went up and down and all over the place. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he had an aneurysm and died with no notice at all. Um, but part of your 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 the thing that you wrote about Kesey was based on a Ben when yeah. Ben was part of his class. Yeah. So so yeah. So well, you know, we all you know, Kesey was like the uh, I don't know, like the bright star that everybody kind of wanted to orbit. Uh, and that's from the very first when I first got to Oregon, you know, it was in the late 70s. Uh, so we all had our interactions with him, especially anyone that thought themselves to be a writer or wanted to be a writer. Uh, we all we all kind of uh, hovered around him, sort of. Uh, I was, you know, very much in the periphery of uh, the, the people who were close to him. Uh, Ray Sewell was was one of the people that brought me. He used to bring me to uh to uh, Ken's house to watch football games, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the the last piece uh, it's a, it's a memoir that I'm writing called Brains. It's about uh, it's really a fictional uh, account of uh, all the people that I knew in Oregon and Eugene that uh, hovered around Kesey. But it starts out with Kesey's funeral, and I'll just read that short part okay. about, about that. This is called Brains by Mose Mosley. Brains. Ken Babs told us that on the day Kesey died, there was a flock of Canadian geese that had taken roost in a field across the road from Kesey's farm. It was a gray-green November day, and they were, when they were driving home from the hospital, Babs said they came down the hill past Buford Park, cruising down Ridgeway Road. They had the top down on Kesey's white Cadillac, and Zane was driving, and Babs was sprawled in the back seat, and as they approached the house, the birds all took off at once. Babs said it was Kesey's spirit taking flight, and the reason he knew was that the birds got halfway up into the air, sorting out their formation, and then they made a pass in a big circle over the farm. Babs was watching him, looking up from the car, and he swears they were flying in the outline of a big letter K, and they kept at it all the way up over Mount Pisgah. You'd have to know Babs before you could decide if that was a true story or not, but when he told it to us, we believed it, because that is what we wanted to believe, and after all, it was a memorial service. Memorial services are filled with suspended disbelief. I sat up in the balcony in the dark, and after he told the story about the birds, I didn't hear much of the rest of what he said because I was suddenly thinking about white pelicans and roseate spoonbills. I have a photo of the last time we took my mom out to see the birds. There was a wildlife sanctuary with a tower built of logs next to the estuary on the bay side of Sanibel Island, and we took her out to see the flamingos, though there weren't any flamingos that year, just a flock of spoonbills a fine stand-in as far as she was concerned. She doesn't look good in the photo. Maybe it is the angle of the light, the sun going down in the middle of the January clouds, the mangrove spit soaking up the image of its own reflection in the glassy waters of high tide. The birds made her smile, but her face is crooked, twisted, with the effort to maintain her vision of life while she looked into the setting sun and the birds gathered in the big old Australian pines for the coming night. 
She died in February. On that day, I was out in my dad's boat, a beat-up old Boston whaler. I was alone, cruising up the pass to Boca Grande, putting in at Upper Captiva to swim and eat a picnic lunch, and then idling my way south along the outside of the islands. It was almost evening when I finally came along Point Isabella. The sunset was spectacular, and just past the lighthouse, I ran into a flock of white pelicans. There were twelve of them flying in formation two feet above the smooth surface of San Carlos Bay. The ocean was very calm and glassy, and I edged the boat right into the open part of their V. We flew together all the way over to the causeway, right under the drawbridge, and then I eased off and watched them cruise west into the sky of rose highlights, a deepening twilight, and the comforting comforting cloak of the Florida night. My dad met me at the dock, and it wasn't until we had the boat loaded on the trailer and were washing it down that he told me my mom had passed away that very afternoon. I was able to rinse the engine and get back into the truck, but I lost it on the ride home, tears coming down across my face in a great burst of sorrow, regret, and embarrassment. So now it was many years later, 17 years to be exact, while I sat in the dark at Kesey's funeral and suddenly remembered that I had never told my father about the birds. It took Babs and his story to remind me, but then it was just about all I could think about. So I sat there in the dark and I thought about my dad. He was now in his 90s, living with his third wife on Sanibel Island in that same old, white, wind-beaten clapboard house that he and my mom bought in the 1970s. A leaky, old, wood-framed Florida house that perched on stilts at the canal side of Venus Drive out by Woodring's Point. They bought it because my dad wanted a boat, but the house fronted on a canal, so it took all their Connecticut money just to buy it. This meant my dad couldn't afford much of a boat, but he found a guy over at Fort Myers Beach who needed to sell this used Boston whaler with a 55-horse Evinrude that stalled a lot and sometimes started. I don't know why all these details come to mind, but I guess it was always hard to think about my dad without also thinking about him swearing at that old Evinrude, pulling and pulling at it while the whaler drifted in the current and I broke out the paddle to try to keep it off the rocks. I guess that's kind of a good memory, at least kind of a funny one, but then I thought that if I told my dad now about the birds, he probably wouldn't get it. I'd have to try to explain it, which I have never been very good at, especially with my dad. And now, thinking about it, I was flashing into sadness, probably some of the leftover sadness from the death of my mom all those years ago, and also a little bit of sadness over the death of Kesey. In all honesty, I never liked Kesey all that much. I might be in a vast minority here, but I don't think that many people actually liked him, not as a person. As a person, he was very self-absorbed, but we did like the idea of Kesey. The same way we like the idea of Hemingway or the idea of Mark Twain or Walt Whitman or even Melville. We like the idea of some guy, some writer, a good storyteller, a guy who led a larger than life kind of a larger than life kind of life, a guy who did something besides teach college, a guy that made himself famous by the force of his intellect and personality. Sure, the, mic got, the guy might be a total asshole when you got to know him a little, but still, we love the idea of that macho American male writer, that break-the-mold lifestyle. We loved it, and we wanted it for ourselves. And if you could shoulder up to a guy like that and see if you could make any of it rub off, well, maybe that was some kind of achievement. So maybe it wasn't Kesey who was the asshole. Maybe it was the rest of us wannabes. At this point, I think that is probably more fair and accurate. 
Anyway, I don't even know how the funeral ended. I guess I remember they carried him out in the psychedelic coffin and put him on the back of the fake further bus, and I was out there when the bus drove off to bury him out at the farm in Pleasant Hill. I was looking for my friends. My friends were not Bob Weir and Robert Hunter and Gus Van Zant and Sterling What's-His-Name, the famous agent, nor were they any of the other merry prankster celebrities that were there at the memorial. My friends were Ben Bachner and Bennett Price and Scott Morrison, my very unfamous friends who were definitely not assholes. We were going up, we were going to meet up and climb Mount Pisgah in the late November afternoon. From up there, we could look down on Kesey's grave in the far distance. Like always, we would tell each other stories, and yes, we were probably going to talk about Kesey, or at least the idea of him. Thanks, Moses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, appreciate you coming in and sharing your writing. Um, we heard, yeah, about Ray and, and Ken. Uh, if we had time, maybe we'll, yeah, hopefully, we don't know who's going to drop next. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, well, anyway, it's an honor to be asked. Yeah, about, yeah. Uh, as you know, I do write and I like to entertain myself. Yeah. Uh, which I do. <laughs> and uh, I don't really want to write any more eulogies, to be honest I with understand. you. I <laughs> understand. But you also write, I, I know you, uh, if you were with me now, that's kind oh, of. Oh, yeah. Like- I have a travel blog that I write called If You Were With Me Now, This Is Where We Would Be, uh, which hopefully will become a book next year. Is it online somewhere? Yeah, it's uh, it's on Facebook, and I also have a uh, a website called uh, Planet Mo's, which is about my traveling. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, my book will be self published, and uh, I'll hopefully sell about ten copies of it. So I'll be pretty happy with that. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, you, my uh, guest is Mose Mosley. You can look look him up on Facebook uh, or Planet Mo's. You said PlanetMo's.com. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thanks again. You've been listening to Train of Thought. My name's Rob Tobias. Until next time. Train of Thought is produced at Maximo Productions in Eugene. If you have comments or feedback or ideas for interviews, email me at rob at robtobias.com.